unveiling the secrets A-list copywriters use to make themselves and their clients millions. This is the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. All right, copywriters, welcome back to the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. David, how are you doing today, man? Nathan, I'm good. How about you? I'm fantastic. Uh, we've got a great episode coming up today, and I just bought the Remarkable. You recommended it, and I've been loving this thing. So Remarkable is not a sponsor for this episode, but I'm glad you persuaded me to buy it. Oh, you're welcome. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled by it. It has definitely changed my work life, and um, I, I think it's one of the best inventions ever. I sort of wanted this to exist you know, when I got my K-Pro 2 in 1982, you know, it's like an Osborne computer, but a K-Pro. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredible. And it works as advertised, which is pretty interesting, right? <laughs> right. So uh, just as a small non-paid plug, if you're a copywriter out there, definitely check out The Remarkable. And that'll be enough of that. Let's, let's jump into what we've got planned for the listeners this week. Okay. So... There's this author. I think you know him well. People who are familiar with the book 1984 know him well. His name is George Orwell. And of course, he had to be a pretty good writer to write 1984 and and have the success that it's had. I mean, I think even recently I was looking at stats online, hundreds of thousands of copies of this novel, this political dystopian novel of of a horrible authoritarian uh, dictatorship future. Okay, enough about that. Uh, <laughs> have been sold. But he wrote another book, three years. So 1984 was published in 1949, but he wrote another book called Politics and the English Language in 1946. And it turns out that Orwell was not only deeply concerned about the political future of the Western world. He was also concerned very specifically about the degradation of the English language. He, he really thought that we were going to go into a world of complete doublespeak. And we could have a long conversation about whether his greatest fears have been realized. But what I want to do with this podcast is not be too political or philosophical, but rather take his little-known six rules for writing, six rules for the English language, and see how they apply to copywriting. And it's interesting because some of the rules apply exactly as written, and some of the rules don't fit entirely for perfectly good reasons. They, they still would maybe fit for writing nonfiction or novels or op-ed pieces, a lot of things where you would be communicating with the public. For copywriting, the rules are a little different. So I wanted to go through all six of them. But let me, uh, let me start, you know, his work, reviewing his work with this comparison he gave. And, you know, since we've talked about politics already, we might as well talk about religion, too, <laughs> out of the way. This is from the Bible, Ecclesiastes 9.11. So he gives, I couldn't figure out which translation this is. It seems pretty close to the King James, but a few words are different. He, and he, he wants to compare 
the way it's written in the literature and what this modern bureaucratic, academic, conceptual English would do to it if you rewrote it that way. So here's the original. Ecclesiastes 9.11. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor riches to the men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. Yeah, that's, that's pretty profound stuff, right? Good stuff. Uh, in other words, <laughs> I don't care what you say, uh, life is a roll of the dice, right? Now, here is the translation into the worst of all possible modern English. And if this sounds like the papers you read every day, you might want to get another job. Okay, here we go. Objective considerations of contemporary phenomena compel the conclusion that success or failure in competitive activities, no tendency to be commensurate with innate capacity, but that a considerable element of the unpredictable must invariably be taken into account. Mm. No wonder he was worried. But Nathan, here's something in plain English that you can't miss it. Copy is powerful. You're responsible for how you use what you hear on this podcast. Most of the time, common sense is all you need. But if you make extreme claims and or if you're writing copy for offers in highly regulated industries like health, finance, and business opportunity, you may want to get a legal review after you write and before you start using your copy. My larger clients do this all the time. Now, I would love to insert a little clip of George Orwell just so we could hear his voice, you know, in, into this podcast. But according to the BBC, no audio. He was British, right? Obviously. According to the BBC, no audio or video recordings of George Orwell currently exist. So all we have is his writing. So we'll have to imagine what his voice sounded like. And I'm not going to do an impression, but feel free if you want, Nathan. I mean, um, <laughs> So what we want to do today is go over his six rules one by one. I'll review all six of them at the end and say, answer the question, okay, so let's take it on faith. Get it? Faith, religion, politics. Let's take it on faith that what he's saying is true for prose, for normal, non-copywriting words written for the public. How much does this or does this not apply? So I just want to say a couple of things. Um, number one, and totally not political, but uh, 1984, written in 48. It's almost 80 years old now. 80 years old now. Wow. Uh, still holds up. It's still a, consistently a bestseller on Amazon. It's still consistently a bestseller at Barnes and Noble. So it's a book that's definitely held the standard or the test of time. And he also wrote. You you mentioned this book. He also wrote Animal Farm. Um, his writing was not what people would assume from that era. A lot of a lot of times when and this is something that copywriters struggle with too, uh, the, the very um, an intellectual style of writing that was kind of common of that era, his writing was always very 
to the point. It was very punchy. It was, it was, uh, I don't want to say it was dumbed down, but it was very easy to understand. And so books that he wrote 80 years ago, they still hold up today. They still sound good today because they weren't written in the very hoity toity way that, that a lot of people wrote back then. And I think a lot of times as copywriters, we get caught in that trap too of trying to sound more intelligent than we should in our, in our own sales copy. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I'm really glad you said that because that was sort of at the back of my mind, but I hadn't, hadn't put it all together the way you did. And it's absolutely right. I mean, you know, it's, it's very easy to make the mistake of thinking, oh, well, writing in a plain and simple way is a 21st century thing. It's a modern invention. I mean, if you read Emerson, I, I did this once. He will put one big word in each sentence. That's it. And everything else is just about as down home and plain and simple as it can be. And he's one of my all-time favorite writers, period. So yeah. Hemingway, Hemingway is also another advocate of keeping it very simple. And these are people that wrote 100 years ago. And so it's definitely not a new thing. This is something that if you wanted to write clearly, these are the rules that have always been uh, always been valid. Yeah. So this, thank you. So this is like, um, these are like eternal truths for, for good, clear, simple writing that's going to reach millions of people. And he has, hasn't he? You know, I mean, I, I remember someone, I remember seeing this in my research, Penguin Press recently reprinted half a million copies of his book. Now, you know, other than J.K. Rowling and To Kill a Mockingbird, and you know, there are very few books that old. And I guess J.K. Rowling isn't that old, but she sold billions of books. Anyway, all right, so let's get to it. Um, rule number one, never use a metaphor, simile, or other figure of speech, which you are used to seeing in print. Now, this is probably better advice for political and journalistic and magazine feature writing than it is for copywriting. And sometimes it's a fine line because you don't want your writing to be so looking so tired and worn out and unoriginal that it's painful to read or boring. But you don't want to avoid common figures of speech either. Quite to the contrary, you want to write the way people talk, but in a little more captivating and engaging way. So many years ago, a copywriter named Richard Dennis did an exhaustive study of Gary Halbert's sales letters. And I'd say Gary Halbert's sort of the gold standard for knowing about how to write about copy. Um, and he found Richard Dennis in Gary Halbert's letters found these phrases, and this is just a small sample. Um, they're just as common as sawdust around a sawmill sprinkled throughout his writing. So I'm going to read you 18 of them real fast, okay? Okay. Okay. Blood is thicker than water. Mm. Easy as pie. Open and shut case. The real McCoy. Speak of the devil. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry. Sacred cow. A picture is worth a thousand words. Needed as a pen. Naked as a jaybird. Out of sight, out of mind. Make a clean breast of it. Let sleeping dogs lie. Kill the goose that laid the golden eggs? Red carpet treatment. In the heat of battle. Get up and go. Work your fingers to the bone. Now, it's less important 
when you're writing copy to come up with original turns. And this is a mistake a lot of ad agencies make for, you know, big box TV clients. They try to come up with totally original shit. And it, unfortunately, it is original shit. Um, it's more important to find ways, new ways, to use ordinary turns of phrase and get people emotionally engaged. So let's take the last one, okay? Gary's uh, last of the 18, work your fingers to the bone. If we can find an interesting way to use a familiar phrase where we are in much better shape. So imagine we have a course teaching fitness trainers to get new clients. It's a marketing course for fitness trainers. So we could use that phrase this way. Most fitness trainers work their fingers to the bone marketing to get new clients. After you take our course, you'll work your fingers to the bone too, but it will be from all those checks you're endorsing to, from your new clients before you put them in the bank. So again, the star of that sentence or that those two paragraphs is not the phrase, work your fingers to the bone. The important thing is endorsing checks and putting them in the bank. But by using a phrase like that, you can um, definitely communicate well without uh, being, you know, boringly literal about it. Okay. I think one other thing too that you always harken back to is the amount of work the reader has to do versus the amount of work you have to do as the writer. When I'm reading a work of fiction and they have a really clever metaphor that I never would have thought of, mm -hmm. I always enjoy it and it, it makes me, it, it makes it a little bit richer but it makes me stop and think. It makes me stop and think about that metaphor. And one thing that we know as copywriters is whenever someone has to stop and think, we lose them. We don't want them to have to stop and think. We want to do the thinking for them. So that it, I can see why the rule would apply more to fiction and would be um, maybe tailored differently when it comes to writing copy. Yeah. It's a, that's a good point about comparing the two because uh, what does a fiction writer want you to do? They probably don't expect you to sit and read their book in one sitting. Maybe, but probably not. They want you to read it, maybe think about it, maybe put it down, get back to it, put it down, get back and finish it, and then get another book. With copy, we don't ever want them to put it down. Once they start reading, we want it to keep going. So we don't want to send them on any side trips where they have to think about what something means. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here's rule number two. Never use a long word where a short word will do. This is almost always true for copywriting. Now, I've seen a rare exception where someone will deliberately use one long, complicated word or a complicated phrase instead of a short one, sometimes to describe a mechanism. So a long time ago, I worked with professional speaker, speaking coach, Patricia Fripp, and John Cantu, who was a comedy legend in San Francisco. And we were doing some speaker training, and I made up a word. And the word was impactification, which is not a dental condition. Impactification to describe an, the act of speaking in a way that had a lot of impact. But I did it as a joke. And we used to joke about it, but we never used it in our marketing and our trainings. At least I never did. Okay, I've seen technology pitches where the marketer throws in a big word or two here and there to make an innovative product seem more important or exotic. 
In general, though, we want to use a short word for a couple of important reasons. One, just like you were bringing up before, Nathan, for instant understanding. People, when they have to mentally decode a big word, it, it slows them down. And the time it takes to decode the word, however long that is, they're confused. And in sales, we say the confused mind does not buy. So we want to avoid confusion at all costs, unless or unless there's a really good reason. I can't think of one. Second is short words are the most direct path to raw emotion. And copy has to stir and sustain emotions. You can't do that with large, awkward, polysyllabic words. The words that spark emotion are short words, almost always. There are exceptions, 95% of the time, though. Usually short words of Anglo-Saxon origin as opposed to origin from the Latin languages, from Latin or French or Spanish or something like that. So the phrase, cut his head off, draws emotion as well as a lot of blood. But the word decapitate might leave some readers scratching their heads, although that might not be the best place to scratch when you hear the word decapitate. (laughs) Okay, David. All right. Do you have a problem with Kindle books? I do. Sometimes I really just want to hold a book in my hand so I can turn the pages and highlight stuff and make notes. That's one reason I recently released the print version of my book, Breakthrough Copywriting. And listen to this. On Facebook, I've gotten pictures posted from around the world. Pictures of people holding their printed copy of Breakthrough Copywriting in their hands including one from an A-list screenwriter and marketer in L.A.'s famous Topanga Canyon. He was reading the book in his hot tub. Breakthrough Copywriting is a great book for you, whether you are a beginner or an A-lister yourself or anywhere in between. It costs a tiny, tiny fraction of my $5,000 a head seminar that the book is based on. So check out Breakthrough Copywriting on Amazon.com. Now, back to the show. So rule number three. If it is possible to cut a word out, always cut it out. This is one rule I have no argument with, and I cannot find any exceptions to. I'm just thinking yesterday, a client in Europe showed me five different headlines for a piece that's been doing really well. And I said, oh, that third one, it, it just stands out. It's so economical. The words are so short. It looks so innocuous. It doesn't look like you're trying to sell them something. And it's, you know, very clear and straightforward. Um, It seems to me that most people write too wordy. I'm the opposite. I often write too concise. The first thing I ever had published was a story, short story fiction, called The $10 Billion Duck. It was a complete story along with a crisis of climax and an unhappy ending. Now, this was just after my brother was born. So, you know, if you're a closet psychoanalyst, you can draw your own conclusions. Um, The story clocked in at under 100 words and was published in the Meadow Hall Elementary School PTA newsletter in Rockville, Maryland. And I remember after it was published, I was reading it and I looked at it next to another student's story and hers went on and on and on and on. Now, Nathan, I shouldn't criticize. I mean, Tolstoy went on and on and on and on, too. And he ended up being read for generation after 
generation. I'm just saying I'm the opposite of most people in this way. But here's why it's an important point. If, if you can say things in a compelling way with fewer words, you speed up the reader and that increases forward momentum. It increases buying energy. But it's also a good rule for writing in general. And I don't want you to get the idea that I'm the master of concise. I'm not, not always. Anyway, some days I have to whittle it down just like everyone else does. And on those days, I often overwrite on purpose so that what I select out of what I've written is the best possible stuff I can come up with. I take advantage of what is called the RCA principle, which I recommend to clients as well. So there's this guy named Joe Carbo. Maybe you remember him. He wrote The Lazy Man's Way to Riches and um, sort of a that's one of the key books you should read if you're a copywriter. You can find it on Amazon. So RCA, for people who don't know this, used to be a huge electronics company. I think it's maybe a brand now that's totally outsourced, but they used to make radios. They were RCA is the Radio Corporation of America. That was the what the initials, the letters stood for. And Joe Carbo's RCA principle was this. Build the best radio you can. And then take out as many parts as you can until it stops working. Hmm. And I would add just to be, you know, to close the loop, add that last part back in so it works again. But yeah, see, see, find the sparest way to write it. I remember one time me and you were talking about John Carlton headlines. Yeah. And you said one thing that really struck you about the way he writes headlines is every single word has to earn its place. And that should really apply to all of your copy. And one simple exercise that people can do is as they're re-reading their copy, just look for the word that. The mm -hmm. word that is so overused. And nine times out of 10, when it's in a sentence, you can take the word that out of the sentence and it doesn't lose any power at all. In fact, it makes the sentence read faster. It, it, it increases the momentum, like you said. So there are a lot of words like that. Sometimes when I'm writing or when I'm rereading a sentence, there's three or four words and I'll just, they're all in a row. And I'm like, those three or four words are just useless. They don't even need to be there. And I'll just cut them out and the sentence reads better. So definitely, especially in your editing process, cutting out any word that doesn't earn its place is one of the best things that you can do for your copy. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. In fact, if you want to get Carlton especially cranky, just use the word that in front of him a few times and he'll start to start to get really mad. Okay, um, so rule number four, never use the passive where you can use the active. So I first heard the following from my friend Barbara Cornell, who was a reporter at the Wichita Eagle Beacon, as it was known until 1989 now. This newspaper is just called the Wichita Eagle. She's also been nominated twice for the Pulitzer Prize. And here's what I heard from her. Clichés and the passive voice should be avoided like the plague. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so it's supposed to show how clever you are when you say it, because in one sentence, you both have a passive voice and a cliché. At the same time, you are preaching against both things. And it is funny. And we've already talked about clichés. Uh, kind of complicated situation, but bottom line, short version, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Oops. So to be clear, here's what the passive voice is. It's when you use a form of the verb to be in front of the important verb in the sentence. So 
for people who aren't grammar nuts or didn't have to learn grammar inside and out by studying another language like I did. I'm not a grammar nut, but I just had to learn it that way. Um, so the verb to be, let's start that. Um, the past tense is was, were, has been, had been, would have been, could have been, could be. Um, I guess those are sort of subjunctive. Then there's the present tense. Uh, to be, I am, you are, he is, she is, it is, they are. And then the future will have the verb to be in it. Or will have been, anything that has be, been, or was, were. That So let me give you, boy, that's a lot of information you probably didn't need to know. Here's how it shows up as passive voice. Instead of saying, she received the gift, you you would say the gift is received or the gift was received. And you see the word was is a form of the verb to be. Um, so in the second sentence, you're saying the gift was received. Notice that she disappears from the sentence entirely. So unless you already know that she was the one who receives the gift, you would have no idea who received it. And that's the problem with sentences written in the passive voice. The so-called actor doing the action is missing. The action, in this case, receive, received, is vagued up. Passive voice is a great way of saying something without taking or assigning responsibility because you never know who did what. So that's what it is. One simple way that I determine whether a sentence is written in passive or active voice is I just ask myself, is the subject of the sentence doing the action or being acted upon? If they're being acted upon, that is passive voice and I need to rewrite the sentence. Yeah. And, and that, that gets right into the problems because as a copywriter, you need to get your reader in an active frame of mind, thinking of doing something to something else, like pulling out their credit card and typing it into a form, for example, that that's a, an action, you know, uh, imposing their money on, on you. So um, since at the end of the copy, you're going to want them to do something like that. And part of getting them to act is getting them thinking actively. So you write actively so they think actively in an active, in an active voice. Secondly, Copy needs to be as visual as possible. And here's why. You want to get your prospect visualizing what you're talking about and especially what their life will be like when they're enjoying the benefits of your product. Copy written in a passive voice works against being visualized because there's no actor, as you mentioned, Nathan. There's no actor in a sentence that's written in the passive voice. For example, listen to this sentence. The book, Breakthrough Copywriting, was purchased. Who purchased it? You can't tell from that sentence. So I would say this rule applies to copywriting 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. There are probably minor exceptions, but I can't think of any, and I'll know them when I see them. All right, so the next rule, rule number five. Never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word, or a jargon word if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. Mm. And this one plagues a lot of copywriters. Well, it's, it's funny because most of the time this is true, but sometimes it's not. It's definitely true when you're tempted to be too lazy to figure out how to say something in, simpler and, in a simpler, 
easier way. Now, uh, the client I was talking to yesterday, we were going over this 30-page sales letter that's doing really well in Europe. And he mentioned there were about two pages that he had rewritten about 30 times. And it was exactly for this reason. So I wouldn't call that lazy, right? Um, he had something technical to explain to the general public regarding a product that was necessary information in order to prove a benefit and some uniqueness. So you don't want to do it. You don't want to be lazy about this. And it's also true not to use foreign words, foreign phrases, scientific words, jargon, when you're trying to be cool and show off how sophisticated you are. So like, if you speak French as I do, you don't want to put the phrase n'est-ce pas in a sales letter unless you're writing to people who will instantly understand this phrase, which means, right? Or isn't that so? Here, here's a hint. Probably better to put in right or isn't that so instead of the French phrase. Okay. But there are times when you use jargon for sure. Uh, let's say, and Nathan, this could apply to you directly. I know. Um, if you're writing copy to fairly experienced Facebook marketers, you can talk about pixeling a prospect and everyone reading should know what you mean. Sometimes using jargon that way but very deliberately, very specifically, very consciously, will bond you with your prospect because it shows you share the same in-group language as they do. And when you do that, that can increase trust. Uh, and sometimes one scientific or technical word, when you place it wisely, will add to your credibility. So if you're selling something for or about a keto diet, you could mention the scientific word ketosis, and that can be part of your description or explanation, even if your reader didn't know what ketosis was before, because it's an important part of the mechanism of how a keto diet works, okay? But for the most part, despite those exceptions, you want to write in as plain and simple language as you can so that an everyday person who doesn't have any special technical expertise can understand it, especially if they're part of your market. So uh, it sounds like what you're saying is when, the, when there is an exception, it needs to be an exception that makes sense for your market. You need to be able to say, is it reasonable that even though the average person might not know this, it will make sense for, my, for the person I want to be reading this? That's, that's the one exception. The other one is sometimes you might want to introduce a technical term in order to maybe establish your authority, explain a new idea. But, you know, you don't have three paragraphs of scientific mumbo-jumbo about ketosis and acid, acid ketid, ket, I don't know, all those things. Um, <laughs> I don't even know anything about it. But, you know, you want to be very conscious that people are not going to understand it if you get too uh, technical. And even technical people, you want to write in a simple and plain language because remember, they're not buying from the technical part of their brain. They're buying from their hearts, which is a very simple language. Mm -hmm. Okay, very nice. Okay, rule number six. Break any of these rules sooner than say something barbarous. Now, what does barbarous mean? It's, it's an old-fashioned word. doesn't have to do with getting your hair cut. Barbarous is... Okay, the Cambridge Dictionary in England says barbarous is characteristic of people who have no experience of the habits and culture of modern life and whose behavior 
you would consider strange. So, oh, I don't know, not to get political or anything, but let's say you went to an international conference and you had a photo op plan with the leader of another country and you get up on stage, shake his hand and just walk away. It would be possible to call, and that's a purely hypothetical example, right? Um, it'd be possible to call that barbarous behavior. The good old American um, Merriam-Webster dictionary um, answers or answers the question of what does the word mean in much more George Orwell simple language terms. Merriam-Webster describes barbarous as uncivilized, mercilessly harsh, or cruel. So. Yeah, this rule is, I mean, now we're going back to 1948. You know, this is from an earlier time, that, or 1946, you know, mid-40s, when he wrote this book, when people weren't saying, bar- this is before Facebook, before Twitter, people weren't saying barbarous things to each other all the time. But it's worth keeping this rule in mind, even in this day, of audacious put-downs, memes, Twitter, and Sarah Silverman. And, because she's pretty rude. Uh, I like her, but she's rude. Okay, if you're going to say something horrible, if you're going to write something horrible, be aware of it and make sure you're doing it on purpose, know why you're doing it, understand the risks. It's possible to sell things to people by offending them, but it's not easy and it's not very likely. The odds are against you. You just if you're going to do that, you need to own that you're doing it and deal with the consequences. Because if you piss people off, you're going to get a lot of blowback. Um, I would say for the most part, it's worth following this rule when you're writing copy. And whether you follow it or not, keep it in mind. One interesting angle on this, okay? A very successful copywriter I met about uh, maybe four years ago. Um, this guy has written letters that have made millions. He's a humble, one of these guys you've never heard of, humble, nice guy, uh, just works systematically. He observed that we direct marketers sell things that maybe you can't talk about in polite company. Things like how to kill people with your bare hands, sneaky seduction techniques, constipation, conspiracy theories, formulas for unspeakable wealth. Actually, even in the last four years, times have changed since I heard him say this, and we almost seem to be in an anything-goes environment these days when it comes to what you can talk about in polite company. Of course, don't even think of playing songs like Baby It's Cold Outside to school children, because <laughs> you know, never mind. So anyway, what I would say about this rule is I would wrap up with a stern admonition I heard more than once from my father. Watch your tone. So I think we'll leave it at that. I'm going to just add one thing. Yeah. When you say this last rule, immediately the person that comes to my mind is Dan Kennedy. Yeah. A lot of Dan Kennedy, the things that he said when I first came across him were, I don't, I don't want to say offensive, but definitely uh, struck a wrong chord with me until I started realizing where he was coming from. And Dan Kennedy is definitely, he's got that no BS part of, of his whole personal brand, but I've, I've seen lots of other people try and mimic or, or uh, duplicate what Dan does and just fail miserably. So it's, it's, um, 
Well, let's let's talk about that because that's interesting. And I think, as you know, I worked for his company for a while doing sales letter critiques uh, for GKIC Inner Circle. And I've known Dan for about 20 or 30, what's 93? Is that 20 years, 25 years? Um, Dan, Dan is courteous. Dan is respectful. He's brutal. He's blunt. He says things people need to hear, but don't want to hear, which is a good trick if you can get away with it. And he has, um, but he doesn't just slash and burn. He doesn't say horrible stuff, you know, to degrade other people. He, he says it to get a point across. And I think, you know, it is where he's coming from. He really wants to help entrepreneurs get past all of the lies and misdirection and, and the con men and maybe, I don't know, other parts of the marketing community. And so I have great respect for him. Also, I'll tell you this, um, everything that he suggested that I've tried has worked, has made money. So that might almost, you know, as long as it's not unethical, the fact that I don't like it, that you don't like it, that someone doesn't like it is in some ways secondary to, you know, whether the guy's legit and whether it works. And, you know, frankly, his style is not my favorite. I'm a more aspirational, positive person, you know, with a heavy dose of cynicism and, and <laughs> irony. But, um, Nevertheless, you can't argue with success, and a lot of my clients have also gotten a lot from him. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you brought him up. But I, I would never put anything he says or does in the category of barbarous, as we've just, just, just discussed it. Well, I, I would say bitter sometimes. It, it, it's, mm -hmm. His medicine is bitter, and it's hard to swallow, but it's still given to you as medicine. It's still given to you with the intention to help you get better. Yeah, I mean, barbarous is like a... A Molotov cocktail, you know, it's like, you know, it's like um, an IED. I mean, it's, and, and I don't think dance like that, but yeah, bitter, bitter medicine. He, you know, a long time ago, he used to call himself the professor of harsh reality. And he knows it. Everyone else knows it. And people see the value in it. And fortunately, um, it's not a totalitarian society. So he hasn't been banned or he hasn't been. Everyone hasn't been sent to compulsory Dan Kennedy re-education camp either. So that's, that's a good thing, right? All right. Nice way to, to tie it back to the original point of the conversation. Uh, real quick, before we're out of here, what was the name of this book again? Because I want to definitely go check it out. For sure. It's called Politics in the English Language. Awesome. By George Orwell. David, thank you so much. Of fantastic uh, conversation today. I really appreciate it. I know the listeners out there appreciate it. And if you want to check out more of this here podcast, head on over to copywriterspodcast.com. Until next time, we will catch you later. Catch you later. If you found this show valuable and you'd like to get it in the ears of other people, the best way to do that is to subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes.